Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. The traditional thank you to our Patreon supporters at the beginning of the episode. Without you, we wouldn't be able to keep making book shambles and science shambles and the blog network and the videos and the live streams and the 24-hour show and everything else we've been doing in this year. Let's just leave it at that. If you're not a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast and you'll get extended episodes each and every week, plus the exclusive documentary podcast series, An Uncanny Hour, that is available only for Patreon supporters. Episode one and two is out now. Episode three, which is all about David Cronenberg's The Brood, that is out this coming weekend. Lots of incredible guests on that episode as well, including Steve Bissett and Charlie Higson and Cindy Hines, who was in The Brood, one of the child actors in The Brood. That's out on Saturday, exclusive to Patreon supporters. We're now less than three weeks to go until the 24-hour edition of Nine Lessons. Good Lord, we've announced lots more people to the lineup as well, so... Robin hosting the entire time, Helen Cheskin, Josie Long joining us, obviously, and Brian Cox and Helen Sharman and Jimmy Barnes and Delta Goodrum and Eric Idle and Rusty Schweikart and Sophie Ellis Baxter and Tanita Tickerham and on and on and on and on and on. Well over 100 guests. It's going to overrun. It's going to be mad. All for charity. Crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons is where you can go to donate and all our profits will be going to Doctors Without Borders and Turn To Us and the King's Place Music Foundation and, uh, relevant to this episode, Mind for Better Mental Health. This is uh, this week's episode is another one that we recorded on the same day as Hallie when, uh, unfortunately, Josie was tied up, uh, so couldn't make it to the recording, but we are talking to Susanna Cahalan. You might have read her first book, Brain on Fire, which was also turned into a movie with... Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, and her new book, The Great Pretender, is out now through Canongate. So we hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Science Shambles. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters. If you are one of those, it makes it a lot easier for us. Uh, if, if you're not, why not? supporters of our patreon anyway today's uh, i am always fascinated in talking about the understanding of the brain and the mind as as uh, regular listeners will know and is what is one of my uh, obsessions and uh, and so it's an easier obsession than particle physics because i have a brain but i don't have a, a, a super collider so it's much easier for me to do experiments on myself um and this book is it's, it's a second book by uh, susanna kahalen who wrote an amazing book called brain on fire we won't really talk about this today but go and uh, look that book up because it's it's a very interesting exploration of our definitions of what we presume to be sanity and misdiagnosis and that's why i want to start with this you you are before we get into the main subject of the book which is david rosenhan uh, i'm your experience from nearly being misdiagnosed for autoimmune encephalitis was basically the, the situation which was seen at that but 
I'm interested in how that has changed the way that you view people, because I think this is an intriguing thing. The moment someone is considered to have some form of mental health issue or something that might be defined as insanity, the way they are looked at, there is a difference in the gaze. And you have obviously had a difference in, in that gaze while you were going through all of those, those diagnoses. How has that changed the way that you also look at other people? You know, I have to say it wasn't just even the gaze, but that that gaze is that medical gaze and actually kind of the familial gaze, the friendship gaze. I mean, like it's really it it, it it's it kind of goes it's larger than just um, how the doctor see you, but how society sees you. And it actually is internalized too. like it was how I saw myself. So when I um, had this diagnosis. Of autoimmune encephalitis. I say encephalitis, you say encephalitis. No, do you know what? I always used to say encephalitis, and then I did loads of events, and all of the people kept saying encephalitis. It's UK thing. Encephalitis <sighs> is in the UK, encephalitis in the US. I, I started saying encephalitis, I think it sounds better, but then I reverted back to encephalitis. But so, you know, when I was first diagnosed with, with autoimmune encephalitis, it was a very new condition. I was the 217th person in the world. I was also recovering my brain was really impaired. And so I didn't really understand what any of these words meant. Um, it, it didn't mean much to me. Um, the only thing that I kind of grasped onto was that some idea that this was a neurological condition. And so once I started to, once I understood that, I felt comfortable talking about this illness and in a way kind of wanted to tell people I had this neurological organic illness as a way of saying I didn't have this mental illness. I didn't have this psychiatric illness. And I didn't, I, could, I don't think I could really verbalize that at the time. I don't even think I knew I was doing it. It was just this internalized view that mental illnesses are some, somehow shameful or somehow my fault. You know, there was this idea of falthood that was still kind of sh shadowing me. And once I started really diving into understanding, oh, this is an autoimmune disease, I felt the com blame completely lifted. And I wrote Brain on Fire with a little bit of that shadow, that quality, um, and, and uh, unaware that I was like, I was internalizing this um, this false dichotomy. Um, and it was only in the aftermath, after my memoir Brain on Fire came out about my experience with autoimmune encephalitis, that I realized that I was really using these same terrible, um, you know, terminologies that separate out the mental and the physical without any real basis in reality and also it's it's you know contributes to stigmatization i didn't realize that i was kind of a part of that in some ways um i was contributing to that well i think it is still a major i mean it's a fascinating thing when you see things like uh i think it's laura mosley who is uh, a pain expert uh, based in australia and uh one of the things that he talks about and i think this can broaden out from beyond pain to to much broader reality he says when you are dealing with pain the first thing you have to remember is the pain is real now it doesn't matter and and i remember watching his lecture where he showed this illustration of someone who had believed they were in agonizing pain and when their boot was removed it turned out their nail had not gone through the foot but they believed it had and they were in agony and i think that in a broader sense as well about mental health is that point of going it, it cannot merely be that you, you can't outthink it. This yeah. is this idea that the, the 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 front of your brain, the very, very tip there, the frontal lobe, there's something so clever that it can argue with everything else in your brain and say, well, this is a ridiculous anxiety or a ridiculous paranoia or a ridiculous vision. It's too complex for that. Absolutely. I mean, when you're especially when you're talking about serious mental illness, then this is that includes, you know, psychotic disorders, very serious mood disorders. There's, it would be the equivalent of, I'm going to talk my way out of cancer. 
I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to reason my way out of diabetes. It's just, you know, I hate using the one-to-one because they are different in some fundamental fundamental ways. But I do think it's good to think about it that way. And, you know, it's it just so interesting how, um, it, you know, just even just the labels that we use um, change the way that we view our own suffering. And it's really interesting that you bring up this idea of, of real versus unreal in, in pain. I think pain is really interesting because you bring in the placebo effect there and this idea of the nocebo effect and the placebo effect. It doesn't matter if it's quote unquote real or not. It's really how the body reacts. So, you know, there's a cascade of things going on in the brain and the body during the placebo effect, whether or not that pill is inert. It doesn't matter. It's the body's reaction is, is palpable. It's measurable. It's real. So, you know, that was a real kind of... Um, this idea of, of belief and faith and what's real and what's not, it's so mutable. It's so hard to pin down. Um, and, and, just, and, and it just shows how outdated these dichotomies are. And, um, you know, the, especially the one between, you know, neurology and psychiatry and, you know, a, a psychological illness versus a, you know, a neurobiological one. These are lines that are constantly... Um, overlapping, you know, it's it's they're, they're not separate at all. Now, because this this book, you know, that the starting point was looking at what is sanity, and that once you've been given the diagnosis that you uh, are not in possession of sanity, then that makes it a lot harder to convince people to get out of it. And I and I find it an an intriguing thing, which is. Uh, I suppose is one way how we define what sanity is. Adam Phillips wrote a book, you might have read it, Going Sane, yes. in which as a therapist, he was trying to go, we're always talking about what's insane. Well, hang on a minute. What's sanity? Right. Shouldn't we try and work out what that definition is? So again, in terms of both the books that you dealt with, have you have you managed to get any sense of a clearer definition for you personally of, of that line, that line between what we consider to be sane and what we consider to be insane? Absolutely not. No. And I think that we said, I think that we um, will constantly butt up against that and struggle with that question of what is sane. You know, sane and insane are, are, you know, these are legal terms, right? But the idea of madness, you know, insanity, insanity, you know, we, we can kind of agree what we're talking about is are we dealing with the same, dealing with an idea of reality that is shared? I guess that would be the definition, right? But, you know, the, the thing that we find out, the more we understand about how the individual brain works, the more we realize that our realities are completely unique to each of us. So the, what I see as an orange might be a completely different color than what you see as orange, but we can agree that it's the same color orange. You know, it, it's so what it, what it shows you is that um, these definitions are, are kind of impossible um, and, and, and they're things that we grapple with as a society. And when you go through the history of psychiatry, you realize that um, there's been a lot of really bad behavior done um, in the name of trying to draw, draw these very kind of strict lines between these two states. You know, I, for me, I think um, a big question in terms of this idea of mental unwellness, let's call it, right, is the idea of suffering. I really feel that um, if you are visibly suffering or you can express a suffering that you are, you can't deal with life in a way that um, is a productive or, um, uh, you know, and I, want, I don't even want to say happy or, you know, that, that itself is, is, is hard to define. You know, when you start to parse out these terms, you realize how hard and how much harder it is. But I do feel that distress and suffering is key to this idea of what is mental unwellness. Now, to, uh, to really define mental unwellness slash, you know, insanity, you have to be able to define its 
it's a kind of counterpart, which is sanity or mental wellness. And and I really have a hard time pinning down the words that describe those. I mean, do you have any thoughts in terms of what for you to, can define those states? Well, I, I, I think one of the things, one of the hardest things is the fact that we mask so much of our inner life. So there are many people we probably know who appear to be going through that. And we do. We share the reality. We see roughly the same reality. But you can sometimes find sometimes when someone dies and their diaries are found or sometimes when when someone is, you know, there is a point where or it might just be a breaking point that someone has where you find out for 30, 40, 50 years of their life. They have held it together publicly. They would never find themselves, you know, incarcerated. They would never necessarily be defined in that. But they've the the battle between their exterior presentation and their internal reality. There's a huge chasm. And I think that's one of the problems. I mean, in terms of a lot of the definitions and when you when you, you talk in the book, you know, about people like R.D. Lang and and uh, um, also. Um, oh, yeah. And and the whole, you know, the anti psychiatry movement. And it seems to be one of the biggest problems is because we are people who conceal much of, of what we are Wait. that. Therefore, to define, you know, until we live in a world where people can say openly and without fear of judgment, do you know what? I had suicidal thoughts today and right. I've had them quite frequently and, I, and, you know, and able to once people once that's normalized, impulsive thoughts, intrusive thoughts, all of those things where people can fight and believe that they're insane, but they can get through the world. And then they yeah. find out, oh, our brain is a very active thing, making up all manner of you know, strange visions sometimes, if you, and I mean that in a very casual visions way, but, but the different possibilities and the different anxieties that until we're able to start sharing the inner life in a fuller way, it's going to be very hard to define what, what is sanity. I mean, it, you know, that's a great point. And I also would add that our brains, ourselves, our souls, whatever you want to call it, it's not fixed. So, you know, if we're quote unquote sane, there are moments in every single one of our lives where we jump over that line if you want to have a line there. And all of a sudden, maybe we lose a loved one and maybe we hear their voice and maybe we see them. Maybe we go through a period of, of um, deep anxiety um, that, that maybe doesn't express itself publicly, but it's felt internally, you know. Everyone goes through profound periods of sadness at some period of their lives. People have um, moments of, 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 of battling with, with body image and food, maybe food scarcity or obsession with certain things. I mean, there are so many moments in our lives, um, some of it internally motivated, some of it externally motivated, where we may jump over that line back and forth. So it's not as if we are always one way or we are always another way. And that and that goes on both sides. You know, someone who has a diagnosis of a, with a serious mental illness is not always acting in a way that's uh, you know in line with that diagnosis, or they might not always be psychotic at all. So you know, that's another part of how hard these questions are. Is these are all such mutable elements, and we as people uh, are constantly moving back and forth and on that spectrum. It's uh, there's a line a, a friend of mine, Philippa Perry. Uh, the first time I think we, we ever spoke, and she such a useful thing. She said the problem with being human is we judge everyone else from the exterior and ourselves from the interior, and there will always be a huge disparity between the two. Yes. And and I think that that once you start to get the realization of of that, when you you see that incredibly confident person, you don't realize that inside they are are paddling wildly like a swan, uh, but they. 
And then this is this brings us really to, I suppose, the subject of the book, which is one of the first things which, as I said before, we start recording this another, you know, hero of psychology. Uh, I don't want to give too much away about the book, but, you know, as 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 we know, there has been much debate about things like the Stanford experiment and, and Philip Zimbardo's work, uh, even, you know, you know, Stanley Milgram. Again, there's been a, a lot of different things and the replication crisis. And this seems in this story again, which is a, 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 an incredible story, and was 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 one of my favourite stories in psychology. Oh, I'm uh, <laughs> but it makes it even more intriguing. Which is, what do, do you feel you're learning about so many of these people that, that that work in this area, and that what are we learning about the fact that we can't entirely trust? these narratives, narratives which have been incredibly important for 50 or 60 years about our belief of what we were really like as human beings. Oh, it's so hard because I do feel, and I feel about all the studies that you referenced, including the study that is the subject of my book, which is on being sane in insane places, I believe there's still a lot of valid takeaways. Now, I may have found during the course of my investigation and my writing about this study that there are some serious flaws. Let's just call it flaws. I mean, we could call it fraud, but we'll call it flaws. Um, but I don't think that we can throw it all away and say none of this has any validity because I do believe it still has validity. You know, I think if we talk to a hardcore researcher, they would say this is an affront and should be, you know, it should be retracted. There should, you know, and, and there actually are a group of ethicists. Um, who have um, co contacted me and want to make want kind of want to make um, contact with science who published the paper and have it officially retracted. But what you just said kind of encapsulates for me the needlessness of that. It has already been subsumed in the culture. It's already been digested by our understanding of the history of psychiatry and of science in general. So moving forward, just retracting it and erasing it from the record does nothing. I think what this opportunity gives us is to look at the study with more gimlet eye um, and really find out what are the actual valid takeaways here? What's hyperbole? What is false? Um, and how do we um, reckon with this past and create a future in the field of psychology, in the field of psychiatry, in the field of medicine and science in general, where this happens less and less? You know, I think that's the takeaway there. Um, not just that, like, these heroes are being, you know, taken down, which they are to some degree. And, and, and I really grappled with that because I, too, like you, started as a huge fan of this study. Um, and it really kind of it didn't make me feel good, let's say, that I found so many problems with it. But I think it maybe we can recast it as an opportunity. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Did you? I mean, you and in the book, you do cover that. You say, you know, there are, as you mentioned, all of the people that we mentioned before and, and others as well. Um, there are useful applications. There are useful ideas. It's a bit like Freud to me. You know, Freud, yeah. there's some stuff that's really balmy in there. Yeah. And there's some yeah. which says a lot more about Freud possibly than it does about human <laughs> beings. But most of the people I know who are Freudians have gone, yeah, you know, this bit's good and this bit's handy. Yeah. And somewhere within this. Can I ask you just a little bit about just for those who don't know about David Rosenhan's experiment? Can you can you give people a little bit of background about what this was? Gladly. So this uh, study was published in 1973 in Science, one of the premier academic journals in the world. Um, and the, the basic premise um, was kind of the opening question, which was, if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? And to test this assumption, David Rosenhan, who was the author of this 
study, who was then a Stanford, um, Stanford psychology professor, went undercover along with seven other volunteers, he claimed, um, to psychiatric institutions around America. And the whole premise was that they themselves, who were volunteers who um, ostensibly had no psychiatric histories of themselves, um, presented with just one symptom. I hear a voice that says thud, empty, hollow. That was it. Their whole backstories, their life stories, everything that, you know, their, their issues with their spouses, their problem, you know, work strife, all that would come in. All the natural parts of being human, gradations of themselves would come with them. The only part that they would change would perhaps they wouldn't say that they were a psychology professor and they would add that they had these hallucinations. Based on that, all of the participants were misdiagnosed with serious mental illness in almost every single case with schizophrenia. And so he comes to the conclusion at the end of this kind of, uh, it, the study itself is so beautifully written. It's engaging. I mean, it really reads like fiction in a lot of ways. I mean, it, this just the description, the, the personal description that David Rosenhan woven, wove in about his own experience where he describes, you know, being stripped naked, um, you know, when he was, first admitted as a psychiatric patient or committed as a psychiatric patient. He describes, um, you know, a, a patient being brutalized in front of him. He describes the kind of more kind of um, subtle indignities, um, such as there's no doors in the bathroom, that um, a nurse actually adjusts her bra in front of a room full of, of, of patients because she didn't consider them human beings. You know, who cares about doing something like that in front of which what he called nether people. And at the so it was it was kind of a description of psychiatric institutions as not beneficial, not um, healing places, but actually harmful punitive places. And he concludes at the end that psychiatry cannot tell the difference between sanity and insanity as he shows in his data. So it was it was a damning study um, for the field of psychiatry which at the time was going through its own reckoning. You know, you mentioned Freud. At this point, especially in America, they were moving further and further away from Freud to this new world of biological psychiatry, which was supposed to have a more firm place in medicine. Because uh, at the time, especially, psychiatry was kind of seen as the redheaded stepchild of medicine. It wasn't seen as a real um, a real discipline. Um, and this was, you know, this was a moment we were making these huge advancements and kind of heart transplants and incredible movements forward in the history of science. And psychiatry still seemed so stuck in the past. So there was an identity crisis going on. And Rosenhan kind of hit right at the heart of that identity crisis with this paper. So at what point during your research, as you said, there were times where you felt tremendously disheartened. How far yes. had you got when you, you opened you know, that box when you found, yeah. you know, started to spit and you just noticed every now and again, certain terms being banded around. You thought, hang on a minute, that's not the guy I thought he was. Absolutely. How so, tough yeah. was that? It was really tough because so I got um, I was very lucky in getting access to his unpublished book, his diary entries and, and, and eight bankers boxes worth of correspondences that kind of spanned his career at Stanford and a little bit from his career at Swarthmore prior. Um, and so I, I really dug in and, and he is such a great, funny voice. I kind of fell in love with him as a research subject, you know, as a person, even though I never met him because he passed away before I started researching. And then I became very embedded in his world, in his family. I, I, I knew his, I know his son very, very well. Lovely person. His best friend is one of continues to be one of a very close friend of mine. Uh, you know, I spent six years working on this and really kind of became a part of his life 
even though he wasn't alive. And so I, I felt very close to him. And so as I started to dig through the materials and I started to find things that didn't add up, um, I first, I think, denied it a bit. There was a little bit of a denial process of maybe I'm not finding everything. I have to work harder. Um, then I came across the medical records um, of David Rosenhan's medical records when he went undercover. And for me, that was the point when I really started to um, doubt him very seriously because the medical records itself, which were corroborated over various doctors who saw him, showed that he did not just show that one, you know, uh, presentation where, you know, this one symptom where he said, I hear a voice that says thud, empty, hollow. That was key to the experiment. They all were just supposed to, sh to have one symptom, that hallucination of that thud, empty, hollow. What I found in his medical records was that he told the doctors that he was deeply suicidal, that he put copper pots over his ears to drown out the voices, and that he had been sick for many, many months, even in some cases, many years, and he had lost his job. I mean, it was this whole portrait of suffering, and that goes back to our definition of what is mental illness, what is mental unwellness, and I believe suffering is a key part of that. And he showed profound suffering. And I talked to psychiatrists in practice today, and they say even though it's so hard to find a psychiatric hospitalization in the United States and in the UK as well, they if, if they would have heard that he had been actively suicidal, that it would have forced their hand. They would have had to hospitalize him. So it became um, a more complicated story than the one that he showed of ineptitude in psychiatry. It became far more complicated. And and then I realized, okay, well, you know, the narrator who I'm relying on. Um, is extremely unreliable. And so it kind of shaded the way I started to do my research from that point forward. How, how has it changed your ideas of, of, of psychiatry? I mean, as you, you mentioned briefly, you know, the replication crisis, and we're kind of being told that hopefully it, it became big enough that it really is something that the reaction is against. For those of you can read up, anyone listening to this about replication crisis, but things like papers that actually turned out has very, very small groups and the, the, a speed of publication, which is, is not connected to necessarily veracity. Um, and uh, so now, how do you feel about it in, in, in the current climate, about where we should be looking and what we need to leave behind. Wow. Well, you know, psychiatry and the whole replication crisis and everything, that to me is the issues with medicine and science writ large. Like I really feel that psychiatry is not unique in that and that we're there there are issues in the soft and hard sciences that are going on right now in terms of um, validity in publication, in terms of um, you know, what's called p-hacking when you kind of take your thesis. You know, th this is this is happening around the world in a variety of disciplines and, and interesting in the aftermath of, of The Great Pretender coming out. I got a lot of emails specifically from graduate students working or PhD candidates working with big shot, you know, researchers who were telling me these horrible stories of data collection and, um, you know, basically designing studies that conform to a thesis, which is not what the scientific method is supposed to do. So. I think that it's a problem in all of medicine but and science. But what you're asking me about psychiatry and what we should leave behind and what we should move forward with, you know, I am in many ways, my story is an example of, of um, you know, the kind of cutting edge knowledge in neuroscience and the understanding of the brain leading to extraordinary breakthroughs. You know, I, um, in many ways, should not have fully recovered in, this, in the way that I have. I was deeply ill. And um, the fact that I, I now 
I'm not ill at all and I was essentially cured is an amazing story for the history of medicine and psychiatry. But what I also learned was that um, I'm an extreme exception to the rule and that there are so many more people suffering um, who are not getting the care they need, who are not um, um, being heard, who in some places are being ignored and abused. Um, so, you know, I think that um, when we are trying to get these big breakthrough, these magic bullets, which, you know, I was a recipient of, we can't forget the day-to-day -day suffering of the majority of people out there in the world. And and this is actually uh, even more extreme right now during this the pandemic, because it's what's happening, especially um, where I live in New York, is that as we've devoted our attentions and our funds, understandably, to the pandemic, what we've done is we've really showed um, how little we value and um, and appreciate and, and really consider mental health care. And what was happening in New York is that hospitals are closing, beds are just being di disappearing, and it's not as if we don't have a mental health crisis. We're having even more of a mental health crisis during a pandemic than we had prior, um, and we were and before the pandemic we were barely meeting the minimum amount of needs for the most sickest, for the sickest and the most um, deserving. So, you know, what this all has showed me is that I, I think in this pursuit of these breakthroughs, we can't forget about the fundamentals of care, of day-to-day -day care, of giving people a place to live, of giving people meals, of listening to them. You know, these are um, in some ways the hardest part of the therapeutic intervention that you can do because it takes time, it takes energy, and it's not easily, in, at least in the United States, it's not easily, um, you know, uh, funded by insurance. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that sometimes we can get in the weeds of, of, of wanting to, to make these big breakthroughs. And I, and I love science and I love progress. Of course, we all do. We all want these, you know, amazing interventions. But just the art of clinical care is sometimes lost when we pursue these big ideas and um and that's been a lesson for me i think most of all is what is lacking at the most fundamental level it's interesting when you're talking also about images of madness there and the uh sometimes uh, uh you you mentioned in the book about aspirational madness and that uh, there yeah. will be for instance you know someone will watch a film like girl interrupted and and yeah. i think a bit, a bit like alcoholism actually alcoholism and 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 insanity when dealt with in in films the mere act of it being in a film adds a level of glamour Add something which even when you see the person acting in pain, even something like leaving Las Vegas with alcoholism, you know, you, you kind of there's there's a certain oh romanticizing, which I think even the Yeah, I mean I and I and I think that um it's such a hard it's a hard route, right? Because I feel that romanticizing is doing a disservice to people who are suffering. However, um I think that by only showing the extreme distress again, doesn't show the gradients of experience too. So how do we handle that in, in the popular culture? You know, how do we make sure that depictions we are portraying of mental illness are uh, fair, nuanced, accurate? You know, it's, the problem is, as we were talking about before, each individual experience is so unique, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you do, do a service to everyone who has schizophrenia? You can't, because everyone doesn't look the same. You know, one person with schizophrenia can look not, nothing at all like the other person who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia partially because that term i feel is um is incomplete i feel like we don't under we don't know what causes schizophrenia we don't know if those two people have the same condition or not you know in 
terms of the actual underpinning of the cause. But um, but so I so I do struggle with so many terrible depictions of of mental illness on screen, and how do we do the work in making sure that that it's done with care and and thought and. You know, I think that's a question of probably asking people to be involved who have had experiences with psychosis, who have had, who maybe who have had a diagnosis of schizophrenia or whatever we're talking about. Maybe that's a way around it. I don't know. But you do bring up that romanticized element is is something that that does bother me. And, and it's still a trope in that is used often, I feel, um, you know, this idea that you have to struggle if you're an artist or a poet or a musician, you have to struggle with your mental health, with your brain in order to create something brilliant. And I think that that has been internalized by a lot of people who deal with mental illness. And and I think there's a lot of pushback to getting treatment because there is this feeling like I, I have to suffer to create art. Um, and is that true? I, I, don't, I don't believe that it's true. Do you, do you believe that you have to suffer to create great art? No, in fact, I wrote a book about that the uh, <laughs> called I'm a joke and so are you. So uh, thank you for allowing me to plug that. Um, yes. No, I think it's a very interesting idea, yeah. which is because I've certainly known people who've pushed themselves to the points of madness, uh, stroke, alcoholism or drug addiction because they've imagined they can drink themselves uh, to being Dylan Thomas. Yes. As opposed to realising that that you're Dylan Thomas first and then you start taking a drink. And then, in fact, the poetry may well not have come from the, the the 17th glass and in fact maybe there would have been more poetry had mm. dylan thomas not been such you know the alcoholism had taken him you know i mean maybe we would have gotten more i feel you know maybe there is a period of time where in the beginning where it allows a little bit of disinhibition you know like allows your to maybe in the beginning you can pour forth a little quicker and then it just I think any sort of, uh, you know, aid in this idea of channeling madness only holds you back. And you think about all the great minds and the, and the you know, and, and this romanticizing of, um, you know, pushing yourself through, through suffering and how many lives have ended and how much art have we missed out on because of this really false notion, you know? Yeah, it's such a. Uh, we must talk about this again. It was uh, no, it's it, I, it. It is such a. I I I find a, it's a, it's interesting. The therapy thing. I was talking to a therapist the other day, and he said, you know, sometimes I really feel that I, I shouldn't be charging at all. He said, every now and again, someone will come in, and they'll just vent for an hour, and they'll say, I don't need to come back. I just needed to tell someone, and that says so much, doesn't it? Again, about that thing that we're keeping so much in very often, and that strange relationship which occurs with someone we don't know and someone we mustn't communicate with out of that office that sometimes once sometimes for the rest of your life it just depends on the person who's just i can explain things that i can't say to anyone else and what a strange relationship there you know? i'm so interested in that this idea of early life disruption is this um would this be described as like a trauma or yeah and, and of yeah. course trauma that's the interesting thing that at eight different ages um, it can be something very mild when placed on a page, a trauma to a two or three year old may seem like nothing. 
and then of course the different you know it, it but it's yeah it's something that i think is is a is a really um fascinating area in in terms of oh, you know yes. all of these different things that go to form who we are i mean i think one of the biggest things we've talked about it on this and various other shows that we, we, we we've done before but also that just that r- realization that people should not be ashamed to look back and you, we don't move on we don't move we, we are yeah. a, a, attached to certain events and there's no shame in being 30 40 50 70 80 90 and going ah that happened at an age as well where the brain is doing so much kind of development it mm-hmm. means something and i think certainly in the certainly the uk culture that it's one of those things where um i think people still feel a, a, an embarrassment Oh God! We all move on. Just bloody move on, don't we? And that, right. Stiff upper lip, like the whole yeah. cliche of that. You know, it's so interesting too. I mean, you talked about Freud. I mean, that's something a gift that Freud did give us is this idea that chi- that childhood events have long lasting effects. You know, and I think there is this kind of notion that oh, anything that happens to you as a, as a child is is there's nothing that you know there's no meaning to it. That's so silly because if you think about it. As our brains are forming, when these big events happen or small events, they are seen through the eyes of a child. So they are made bigger, more significant because, you know, this is these are brains that are are not fully formed. We haven't had many life experiences before. So this can fundamentally shift your personhood at a very young age to not give that the proper consideration, I think, is 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 really problematic and so you know i think that shows you that there's there's a real need for therapy you know in whatever form works but you know i think that with this biological perspective on mental illness that um that that kind of idea that therapy is important has been lost along the way that's again that art of clinical care um for me i i think that you're just what you're bringing into this idea of this of this what would you call it you said disruption childhood mm. disruption are, you know, early life disruption. It's so profound and so important. Uh, and I think, and I think as, as we're moving forward in this new, you know, hopefully post pandemic era, um, we're going to find that it's, that this was had a huge disruption for a lot of people's lives. And there's going to be a lot of need for therapy, I think. Yeah, it's such a. Uh, we must talk about this again. Okay. It was uh, no. It's, it, I, it, it is such a. I. I. I find a, it's. A, it's interesting. The therapy thing. I was tra- talking to a therapist the other day, and he said, "You know, sometimes I really feel that I, I shouldn't be charging at all." He said, "Every now and again, someone will come in, and they'll just vent for an hour, and they'll say, I don't need to come back. I just needed to tell someone.' And that yeah. says so much, doesn't it? Again, about that thing that we're keeping so much in very often, and that strange relationship which occurs with someone we don't know and someone we mustn't communicate with out of that office that sometimes once sometimes for the rest of life it just depends on the person who's just i can explain things that i can't say to anyone else and what a strange relationship there i have to tell you one thing i just read about before and this i i'm reading about virtual reality and um its use in all sorts of areas of medicine and one use has been in the therapeutic model and what this one study did was put people who have had some kind of problem that they're trying to work out in a room with an avatar that is Freud, right? Looks like Freud, you have a couch. Now, during one session of the virtual reality, you are the patient and you are talking about your problems. In the other form, you return, but you're in the body of Freud and you're actually looking at yourself saying all your problems and then you give yourself advice. And the outcomes have been amazing. 
it was it's like there's this al- there's this alchemy that happens when you take on a different persona and and apply a new perspective it's like you can see your own problems from the physician's perspective it's fascinating so it, that- i think this there the therapeutic model is going to go through a lot of transformation, but it's still going to be really profoundly important. Those kind of things, avatar therapy as well, the use of MDMA with PTSD, yes. all of that stuff is just kind of, I love it because the avatar therapy, I find it so for people with an intrusive voice that yes. for some people, you know, being able to physicalize it, being able to turn it into, obviously for me, I just turn it into Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. Um, but um, the, uh, but that to me is such a, that way of just being able to take it you're still in your mind of course you're still in your mind but you've yeah. created something which appears to be outside your mind to have a conversation i find that intriguing um, the book is fantastic and uh write a screenplay about nelly bly if that story's never <laughs> been told <laughs> oh, Such... I have to drunk history have you ever seen drunk history i i've not seen the nelly but it's nelly bly on drunk nelly history bly, they do laura dern plays nelly bly and it's excellent i have to, i will have to give that i give that a credit where it's due it's fantastic oh well yeah turn it to because it's uh, the, the the i mean the, there's so many different things that are within this story and also the whole story of gaslighting uh you know the the the, the, the way that women were deemed to be insane for the you, you talk about dickens and you talk about Ed, edward bulwer lytton He's, yes. he, he was uh, wrote about Vril and uh, the Hollow Earth and all manner of strange things. So yeah, yeah there's, there's I, I, I think that's. Uh, do you have any? I wonder if actually I was interested. If there are uh, you consider any really good books on the relationship between diagnoses and especially in the nineteenth and twenty and twentieth century, really, in terms of uh, the the male psychiatrist and the female patient, because that's a, such a rich area. Oh, area. that is that's a great idea. There is one book. Oh my gosh, I'm re- forgetting her name um, and the name of the book, of course, which is helpful, um, which does go into eighteenth and nineteenth century in the UK um, specifically. But a person who I always return to um, is a is a professor of, of, of sociology called Andrew Skull, and he he's written extensively about the history of psychiatry. And uh, his books are just a, a wealth of information. He was a source of mine for the creation of my book, and I repeatedly return to him. Uh, and he has. He has a few great chapters on that dynamic, but I think that's an interesting, very fertile area to to continue looking into. I think that's brilliant. Thank you. So, Great Pretender is out now. It's from Cannon Gate, uh, and uh, highly recommend it. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and thank you very much to all of you who support us for our Patreon because it helps a great deal. Thank you very much, Susanna. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to become one if you are not already. The Great Pretender is out now. Make sure you grab yourself a copy of that from Hive or wherever you get your books. You can rate and review five stars on Bookshambles. On Bookshambles? No, rate and review five stars Bookshambles on Apple Podcasts. It still wasn't a great sentence, but you know what I mean. Uh, That really helps us out if you go and do that. The 24-hour show is December 12th, starting at midday. You can donate at crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons. Back with a new episode next week. Until then, stay safe, take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 